Well, good morning. Welcome to Battleground. If you're watching online, take your Bibles. Turn with me to John chapter 8 as we finish this amazing chapter. And this is, by many accounts, a, a pinnacle section in the Scripture, not only in Scripture, but in our Christian faith. So let's remember, because we've all slept since last week and the week before, uh, we were through books of the Bible. We've been working through chapter 8. The context is Jesus has turned to have a conversation with those who say they believe. And as often is the case in, in many situations, especially when you have more than just one-on-one, you have what the Bible with some kind calls a mixed multitude. You have people that are listening to you that think you're nuts. We're going to see that today. That's what they thought about Jesus. They're going to think about it at you. There's people who are going to think you're nuts. In other words, they're going to reject what you say they're going to reject Christ. There are those that are following Jesus for their own selfish desires. They feel as if there's something to gain following Christ. So they follow him. And there's those who sincerely believe. And so as he's talking, he's talking to those who say they believe. He's, he's got the, the Jews, as John would call it, the Pharisees, the religious leaders listening. And so this is a conversation that is right in the ongoing when we when we read this text. So let's stand to our feet. John chapter 8, verse 48. The conversation is, is as we would say, um, I know we've all had these conversations where you're saying inside yourself, this conversation's going a little bit downhill and, um, with the, those that are here. So listen, this is God's word. John chapter 8, verses 48. We're going to be reading down to verse 59. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. That you have not known him, I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You were not yet fifty years old, and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Let's pray together, Lord. Our God and our Father, we understand very clearly as those listening did what Jesus has just claimed to be. The question is today, our Lord and our God, is how will those hearing today respond to it? 
God, either your son is the way, the truth, and the life, or he is not. And we have gathered today to say that he is the I am. It's why we are celebrating Christmas. So God, today, may the incarnated life of your son be more real today than anything else in our life. May it change us. May it remove the spirit of fear and give us courage and power. Wisdom, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So you might say, did you not have a calendar? Don't you know that it's like the week before Christmas? This seems like to be a strange Christmas text, but you would be wrong if you think that. This is a pinnacle Christmas text. So we've been taking the whole month rather than just one week to look at the life of Christ, His incarnated life. God becoming flesh and dwelling amongst us. What does that life look like? And what can we learn from it? What did that life bring to us? The person of Christ has always been a matter in the church of oftentimes almost a war, defense. In AD 325, there was a heresy going on that, that attacked the very deity of Christ, saying that he was simply the first creation of all creation. That he was not God the Son, but just the Son. And so the church met and formed the Nicene Creed that says this, We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of all things visible and invisible. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten of the Father, light of light, very God and very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for for us men and for our salvation came down and was incarnate and was made man. This was the confession of the church. We have never moved, and 1,700 years later, we stand to say this morning the same thing. He is God the Son, the firstborn, the only one in the family. Jesus' incarnation then brings, listen, it's important. He brings God to us in order to bring us to God. Jesus came down to us. This is important for our application today. This is the pattern for our life. Why did he do that? To bring us to a family. He came to us to bring us to God in order that we might have a family where God is our Father. And because he is our Father, he gives his children freedom. So, last week and this week, we've been looking at that freedom. Last week we said it was the freedom over the enslavement of of sin. This enslavement that plagues our very nature, not just our mind, but our very essence of who we are is enslaved by sin. Christ came to deal with that. So he did. In his life and in his death and in his resurrection. Romans 6.23 says this, you know this, the wages of sin is what? But the free gift is what? Eternal life. Those are critical this morning. To understand his promise of freedom over death you may, never, you may never lose hold, never un, you can't understand it enough what it means to have eternal life. This is John's button, and he's going to keep pushing it through the whole rest of the book. Here's the reality. We're all scared to death. 
of death. <laughs> the world is. The people that you're going to meet tomorrow at work or on the street or at the store are scared of dying. They, they avoid it at any cost. They do, we do everything to prolong our lives, don't we? How we work out, how we eat, how we dress, what kind of cars we buy, the safety equipment, the mask we wear, the helmets we wear when we ride our bikes and take our kids, put on their, their, all their safety gear. We care about that. Matter of fact, sometimes we care almost too much, don't we? It can become what psychologists call anxiety. It's not a Christian article, but a helpful one in psychology Today, they actually have a name for it. They call it death anxiety. The name of this article was, Death Anxiety is at the core of most of our phobias. Listen to what it said. Again, not a Christian article, but a, <clears throat> excuse me, a helpful one. Death anxiety is often considered to be one of the most common fears. It appears to be at the core of several mental health disorders, such as health anxiety, hypochondria, panic disorders, agoraphobia, post-traumatic stress disorder, obsessive-compulsive disorder, depressive disorders. For example, individuals with panic disorders frequently consult with their doctors regarding the fear of dying from a heart attack. Depression after retirement may sometimes function as an anticipation of the ultimate end of existence, end quote. It is our reality, Francis Bacon said, men fear death as children fear to go into the dark. So I've got a point and a purpose. I wanted to say this. I don't oftentimes say it. Every time, every week when your pastor studies, I have a main point. We often call that the main idea. It's at the top of your notes if you've got your thing. Main idea. That is the main point that the text has. Not the main point your pastor has. The main point the text has. The main point of this text is Jesus' incarnation brings victory over death. But I also have a purpose. My purpose is driven to my application. And here's my purpose for you this morning. Of all that we could talk about about victory over death, and we'll talk about much more in the future. I want us to experience freedom over the fear of death in our everyday life. I want us to experience freedom freedom from the fear of death in our everyday life. Jesus is made a claim here. He's claimed to, to be from His Father, to be the only Son of the Father. And it has been met with a response. Look at verses 48 to 49. You're nuts. Nuts. You've got a demon. Either you, you're legitimately crazy or the devil's in you. And so what Jesus is doing, don't miss this. We talked about this last week. Jesus has given them a paternity test. Remember we said that last week. That they may be angry, but all they're doing is proving his test. The test is the question, who's your father? Who's your father? You see, Jesus' life displays who his father is, and so does yours. It is our objective paternity test on who we belong to. So the question with this paternity test last week was, are you experiencing freedom over the enslavement of sin? Next, today, are you experiencing freedom over the fear of death? This is our paternity test. And so I want you to see this morning two things, an astounding promise and an eternal declaration. An astounding promise and an eternal declaration. First, let's look at the promise, verse 51. 
Jesus' incarnation brings an astounding promise. Verse 51 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Notice again, just like last week, there's a condition, and it's the same one. You've got to abide. You've got to keep my word here. The, it is a conditional phrase, but it is open to anyone. Do you see that? If anyone, if anyone abides in my words, he will not. This is the promise to all those who abide. There's no distinction. You see, I want us to understand this fundamental principle of death this morning, and we'll build on it as John builds on it. Death is fundamentally separation. We know this. You know when you go to the funeral home, don't you? Whether it's your loved one or whether you go to love on somebody else that you love that has lost someone, that the person there that's laying in that coffin is just a shell of who that person was. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, Eternity is bound up inside of us, though we don't completely understand it. <laughs> don't understand what God's doing. He's making this claim that we'll never see death. Spiritual now, physical later. Doesn't go into a lot of explanation here, notice. But it's important to understand first, death is fundamentally separation. Your physical death one day is a sign of a greater reality that's coming. That every person here and every person there, including the most intelligent scientists, know. That's why they hate it so. Why do you hate a God that does not exist? Because you know He does exist. And if He does exist, there is an eternity and we're headed there. We're headed there. Our sin separates us from God. And the moment you die, whatever you are right now becomes concrete. The Bible says those that have been separated by their sin that pass into eternity without Christ are separated from the mercy and grace and love of God forever in the horrors of hell. That's what the Bible says. Jesus is concerned. Jesus is concerned about their paternity, about who their father is. I want you to understand death is fundamentally separation, but also, let's grab a hold of this other truth. We've already looked at it. John 6, 47. Turn back a few pages there and look at John 6, 47. This is another one of those consuming points of John. We've already read it. One of our passages that we're going to look at in the future, we're going to look at another one in just a second. But John 6, 47, I want you to grab this to understand what does he mean? Here's the question I want you to be asking. What does he mean that we'll never see death? What does he mean? Death is fundamentally separation. John 6, 47, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. He doesn't say whoever believes will have eternal life. We're going to look at that more in the future. He says right now you have it. So the key to understanding what he means by this is to understand, to believe, to be an authentic follower of Christ is to have eternal life now. It's important to understand what does he mean. He's going to explain this more. We just got through reading it while we were worshiping through music and word. John eleven twenty five. I am the resurrection and the life. Notice that. Turn with me. I want you to see this. I don't want you to... I've, I, this is one of those things I've, I've read over all my life. I want, you, 
I want you to see it. I'm going to read it again. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Verse 26. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. You ever notice the live part? <laughs> who, I, I, was, I was reading this week going, this is whoever lives. You know what live and believe is? It's present active. Whoever is right now living and right now believing in me shall never die in those alone. No, promise expanding, you see. It's not just when we pass, it's while we live that we experience this freedom. John 17.3 says, says it connects this. And this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So we have... You cannot understand the promise, this astounding promise this morning, without understanding the nature and the promise and the gift of eternal life. I think the best passage to read to understand it really is in Hebrews 2. Appreciated so much conversation I had before the service. Told me he always does this. I want you to do it. I want you to go home. I want you to read Hebrews 2. I want you to understand the context to see if it doesn't help you understand what we're talking about today. Hebrews 2, let me just read verses 14 and 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he, Christ, himself, likewise partook of the same things. Listen to what he says. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power over death. That is the devil. Verse 15. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Do you see what Christ brought us? Freedom over the power over death. We experience that understanding in life. The power over death has been foreverly altered. The bite, the fear of death has been removed from those who follow Christ because His finality has been irrevocably, foreverly reversed. Here's the promise this morning. Don't miss it. Nothing can sever you from the life-giving relationship that you now enjoy with God. Ever. Ever. Not you, not those we love. This is the promise from the one who lived a perfect life because we couldn't. Give us this life. Listen, this is the Christmas miracle worth celebrating. Nobody can separate us from it. It's ours. Life now, life forever with Him. The astounding promise is not met with, hey. <laughs> you know, you ever notice some of the best news you've ever shared with anybody? Some people just look at you like, hmm. You know. I can remember sharing our whole story of our adoption and how it points to Christ and, you know, eating, you know, and tears falling down my face and they're looking at you like, <laughs> here is worse than that. It's a, they bring a combative question. To, so to that, here's what they say. Who do you think that you're trying to be? They're not even saying, who do you think you are? They've already asked him in verse 25, who are you? This word to make out here is in verse 53. 
It says, who do you make yourself out to be? It's the word for fashion, to mold something. They're saying, who are you presently actively right now? Who are you trying to act like? Who are you trying to form yourself into? Because it sounds an awfully much like you're trying to make yourself out to be our Messiah. The truth is that, like normal, the religious leaders miss the point completely because Jesus is not trying to be anybody. He's simply doing what his father told him to do. That's what he keeps saying, isn't it? Sent by my father, given this to do, told this to say, this is what I'm doing. This is important this morning. If, if you engage in a conversation and your apologetics or your theology or your, your, your gospel message, whatever it is, just fails to get through, they will oftentimes turn to attack you. And you just need to understand. That's what they did with the Lord. It's part of it. <laughs> it's part of it. So three principles I think could help us to not live in the spirit of fear this morning. Right here, let's just, let's just look at these for a second. I'm not going to go into great detail. I just want you to know them. When you speak the truth and you're confronted by the truth you proclaim or the truth you live, understand three principles. Verse 49, John 8, verse 49. They said he had a demon. Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Understand this. When followers of Jesus are attacked, their father is attacked. When followers of Jesus is attacked, our Father is attacked. And so listen, brothers and sisters, that means we expect it. We're not surprised by it. Sometimes we're surprised who does it. We're not surprised by it, and we simply forgive and give it to the Lord because our Father saw it, He knows it, and He will deal with it. And we just get about our Father's business just like Jesus did. Important principle to not let your fear of what people think control you. When they attack you, they attack him. Verse 50. Yet, I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Authentic followers do not seek their own glory. We do not need to engage in the mission of God and fly a banner of Battleground Community Church everywhere we land like we're trying to exalt our name. We are here to exalt Christ's name. He builds His church, not us. We exalt Him. And He brings the sheep into the fold. Authentic followers of Christ don't seek their own glory. They don't toot their own horn. They don't promote themselves. Their concern is what Jesus concern was the salvation of those who hear period not self-promotion authentic followers understand when they're attacked their fathers attacked they understand that they do not seek their own glory and then look at verse 54 authentic followers must be content with the approval of our heavenly father alone jesus answered if i glorify myself my glory is nothing it is my father who glorifies me of whom you say he is our God. Sometimes, brothers and sisters, in the pathway of obedience where you are right now and where you'll be in the next season of life that comes, you have to be content 
with doing what your father says, and that has to be reward enough. So understand, this is an important life lesson for me that I am learning, and I hope you will learn. Success in life is not recognition. Success in life is not physical prosperity, but the joy of knowing that I am doing what the Father has given me to do and that I am approved by Him eternally, period. The Christian who understands that is unstoppable. Jesus' incarnation promised us freedom over the fear of death. And that's good. Jesus not done. He's not done. Jesus' incarnation brings an eternal declaration. You see, to make such a declaration that the Lord Jesus Christ is about to make, you've got to have the right qualifications. So let's look at just a few of them. Verse 54. Jesus answered, If I glory, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. Verse 55. But, but, you, know, but you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. Listen. But I do know him. And I keep his word. Qualifications are important. We had a solar panel company come by the house. Not too long. It wasn't that long ago. And they did their whole pitch to put solar panels on the back of our house. The way our house faced and the way the roof line is, um, they said it would be beneficial. And so we listened to their pitch, and they left us with this big booklet. It had this really nice website they wanted us to go to. It had all these website testimonials. And so we did our homework. And then we called them and said, I want people's names. I I hear what you're saying. You've got a nice glossy paperwork here. But I want to hear somebody on the other side telling me about your qualifications of who you say you are and what you've done. Did that ever come? No. (laughs) So what did we do? We don't have solar panels on the back of our house. Qualifications are important. What is Jesus' qualifications? It boils down to to this simple truth. I know the Father in a way that you don't. Remember, we've said this last week. God is claiming to have experiential knowledge, not merely intellectual knowledge. He claims to have a personal relationship with God. And they don't. So is it... His qualifications is best seen in verse 55. He has a qualification that me and you cannot say. I know him perfectly and I obey him perfectly. What he's about to claim is enough to make some people jump off the boat, so to speak. Here's what he says. I know him perfectly and I obey him perfectly. So when Jesus tells us to abide, it is because he lived a perfect life and he abided perfectly past present and future so Jesus is not done (laughs) he's he's setting them up so to speak in verse 56 Saul just got to go home today and roll around with this what Jesus said here It, it only gets more profound the more you think about it your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day 
he saw it and was glad. Now go home and chew on that one. Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. Abraham saw it and he was glad about it. This is important today. Jesus is not some man that came and lived a good moral life and because of that God adopted him. He himself is divine. He's claiming to be the promised Savior. And here's what he's saying right here. Abraham longed to see my incarnation. So grab this thought with me. You just have to take home and think about it. I'd love to give you some other passages at some other time. Abraham longed to see the seed that was promised by the Father, and that seed was Jesus Christ. He promised him an offspring. He looked for the Messiah. And here he says, he saw it. That's what his faith was in. Abraham was saved just like we were. Faith in the coming of Jesus Christ. Faith in Him. Jesus is the incarnation, you see. This is why this, this is a Christmas passage. Jesus' incarnation brings us face to face with the eternal God. Verse 57 and 58. So the Jews said to Him, You are not yet 50 years old. Have you seen Abraham? They're going back to this whole your nuts thing, right? We thought you were crazy. Look at verse 58. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. This, brothers and sisters, for the Jewish people, for many of those that we know and love, is the jumping off point. Because here Jesus takes the God's name to himself. And you see, you can't take that to yourself and ever go back. Either when he took it to himself, that is exactly who he is, or they're right and he's nuts. So again, where does this come from? Why did he say it that this way? Why did he just say, I am? Well, turn with me to Exodus, and I think we'll see. Even though you may know this, you need to see it. Exodus 3.14. You remember, God's people are enslaved. They're enslaved. They can't do anything about it themselves. They need God to intervene. So he chooses a man named Moses. And in this conversation between God and Moses. Verse 14, Exodus 3. God said to Moses... I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent you. This, brothers and sisters, is what Jesus Christ took to himself. He says to the Jewish people, I am the I am. Jesus here is declaring himself equal with God. This is the cornerstone of Christianity. All of Christendom hangs on this question, who is Jesus? So this Christmas, no matter what anybody else is celebrating, we are celebrating the fact that Jesus Christ is the I Am. 
the eternal one, equal with God, very God of very God. There's no one else that takes his place. This is clear. Oh, how many scriptures could we read this morning in the Old Testament that said this? Let me just read a couple. Isaiah 41, verse 4. Who has performed and done this? Calling the generations from the beginning. I, the Lord, the first and with the last. I am He. A couple chapters over in Isaiah 43 and verse 13. says, also henceforth, I am He. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I worked and who can turn it back? Brothers and sisters, all of Scripture, all of Scripture follows the promise of an offspring that will bring freedom. And that offspring came to a virgin and was born and placed in a feeding trough so that the poor and the rich alike may know that God has stepped down out of glory into time and space and He will receive all that repent and put their faith in Him and promise to give them eternally life. This, brothers and sisters, is Christmas. This is what we celebrate. So how did they respond? Tried to kill him. So Jesus' incarnational declaration is met with the rejection and a desire to destroy him. So here's the question. Did Jesus really mean to say that he was the Exodus 3.14 I am? Maybe he got interrupted, he just didn't finish his sentence. Well, look at verse 59. It says those that were listening picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. So Jesus' enemies bear witness that they understood the clarity that Jesus was claiming to be God. And that was blasphemy, so they wanted to kill him. And with that, the conversation closes. So what? So what can we grab from this? Well, remember my main purpose for you, for me, for us, that we would experience the freedom over the fear of death in our everyday life. So that's driving my question. Does the reality of death motivate us towards a risky faith or a paralyzing fear? So let's think about the question for a second. Does the reality of death... Stop for a minute. Death is your reality and it's mine. Jesus gives us eternal life and promise of a resurrection. But right now, unless the Lord comes back, one day death is our reality. Physical death is going to happen. What does that reality do does it paralyze or does it motivate? Because what it is actually doing in our life, not what we say it's doing, but what it is actually doing, determines whether you understand the promise that Jesus Christ lived, died, and rose again in order for you to may live abundantly right now. See, this is what drives my question. This is John's passion. We can read Paul and think about the resurrected, resurrection, the future. John is writing to people discouraged. John wants people to understand right now. What does God bring in our life? 
You see, this is important for the church. It always has been. You see, for the first 300 years after Christ, there was very little relief. There was some here and there, but very little relief from the children of God. They lived in constant threat and constant reality of persecution and death. And listen, brothers and sisters, you think that was a long time ago. You see, this is why the American Christianity is so apathetic. This is an article from the Christian Post. It was put together by Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary. Over 900,000 Christians have been martyred in the last 10 years. You just need to let that sit on you for a second. Because we're sitting there going, persecution don't happen because it don't happen to me. For many people, our brothers and sisters, the reality of death is something when their children walk to school, they have to deal with. When their husband or their wife goes to the market, it's the reality of life. 900,000 of our brothers and sisters have died over the last 10 years. According to Gordon Conwell's Center for Study of Global Christianity, over the last, this past year, 90,000 Christians died for their faith. So this is not a mute question this morning. You see, before your pastor preaches a message, I've got to ask myself the question. If, if I flew into one of these countries to where these people are dying, would my message still be true? What would I have to change? Does the reality of death for those who are facing imminent death motivate them toward a risky faith or a paralyzing fear? That question is just as important for them as it is for us today. Here. I say this because I love you. You do not need to fear the persecution that is coming. And I'm telling you, that is coming. Does that statement motivate you toward a risky faith or a paralyzing fear? My point, main idea today of the text, Jesus' incarnation brings freedom from the fear of death. That's our first taste of victory. I don't have to fear it. Turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1. I want you to think about this not just as a, a book of the Bible, but it is a word from God, which it is, but I want you to understand it. I want you to see this, this book. You can go home and read it next week. Read it as a letter from a man who had invested his life into another man. These were two guys who loved each other. This was a letter from a man in prison who was just very shortly would lose his head because of his faith. And yet the man in prison, the man in chains, writes a letter in 2 Timothy 1 and verse 6 and encourages free but struggling Timothy. For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of, laying on of my hands. Verse 7. For God gave us a spirit not of fear but of power, love, and self-control. This is the question that 
Timothy had to deal with, that we have to deal with. How do I put on a risky faith and put off the paralyzing fear? Because if we're all honest with ourselves, there is times in my life where my fear paralyzes me. It's not as if I do not know what I'm supposed to do. It's I don't want to do it sometimes. So I busy myself up and call it being responsible. It is never responsible to disobey what the Lord tells you to do. Even if you're doing it by working. So I want us to see three things today. Risky faith is an incarnational faith. Risky faith is an incarnational faith. The question, why does Paul care so much for Timothy? I ask people that sometimes when I get frustrated. I've said, why do I care so much for you? Because God has set His affection on you. They loved each other. By most accounts, people, people believe that Paul actually evangelized Timothy. He came to Christ because of the influence of his ministry. He discipled him. Timothy and Paul shared joy together, pain together, persecution together. Timothy and Paul saw each other at their best and worst days. Timothy knew where all Paul's scars were. And he saw some of them put on there. And yet Paul in prison encourages him to be bold and courageous. In other words, being incarnational means that your life is oriented towards the life of Christ. And the way we live in relationship to each other, this is first. It's first. Before we step out into a lost world to share in their mess, we must first be committed to sharing our own with each other for the good and the bad. Quit leaving churches if you're watching online. Stick with people if the Scriptures taught. We need each other. We have our own messes that we're trying to follow Christ in. And I need you for mine. And you need me. Why is this so important? Because we do not serve an apathetic, passive Savior who formed a plan and sent it down here, but one who came Himself and moved in next door to abide with us in our mess. And so we must do the same. This is incarnational. This is risky. And if you don't believe it's risky, try it. In other words, I sat one time in a preaching meeting with Pastor Jeff at Parkwood, and he asked everybody, young pastors around the table, how many sermons have they, have they preached? And, and most of them could list them. Well, I've preached five, I've preached six, I've preached eight. He said, as long as you can count the sermons you've preached, you haven't preached enough. As long as you can count the amount of people you discipled, you have not discipled enough. You can't count them. Why? Because most of them will take something and turn around and walk away. That's true. That's why it's risky. I asked a sister in Christ who experienced this this week. We worked with a dude all week. Got him a little work. He didn't show up. I said, do you ever feel like that you want things for people worse than they want it for themselves? She said, every day. Every day. You know what she said? She said, you know, that's exactly what I did to the Lord. And he never stopped pursuing me. Sometimes the pastor becomes a student. 
Risky faith is an incarnational faith, and risky faith is a merciful faith. What do I mean by that? I mean that risky faith, merciful faith, is a seeking faith no matter the cost. It is a seeking faith. I missed this, another one of those things I missed. I missed all kind of stuff this week as I went through Scripture. Look at 2 Timothy, if you still got it, verse 16. Verse 16. You see what it says? There's this dude called Onesiphorus. Let's just call him Mr. One. Right? Look at Mr. One. The Lord granted mercy to the household of Mr. One. For he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. Verse 17. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. This guy went to Rome and searched and found him in prison just to encourage him, just to love on him. Brothers and sisters, the incarnational faith is also a merciful faith because it seeks people. It does not put a digital sign out in front of the church and say, oh, welcome. It closes the church doors and goes out into the highways and byways and it enters into their mess, brothers and sisters. To this we are called. This is the church, not a place you come to, the people we are. This is who we are. We are like Mr. One here. We don't wait. We go and seek. Risky faith is a missional faith. It is a, an incarnational faith. It is a merciful faith. It is a missional faith. Put these on, brothers and sisters. Look what, Tim, look what Paul says to Timothy. Verse 9. He's in prison. When I am suffering, chapter 2, verse 9. When I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Listen to what he says. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Paul's saying, Timothy, I know it's hard. But listen, I am in prison for the sake of the gospel. And you are suffering as a pastor for the sake of the gospel. So he goes on to say in verse 15, so let's get to work. It's a good Christmas message. You are who you are because of what Christ has done. And he has declared who you are. And nobody gets a word in now. So, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who doesn't need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. He ends his letter by reminding Timothy to fulfill his ministry. He goes shortly after that and is beheaded. And so, battleground community, we are those who have been given eternal life and no one can take it away. So, brothers and sisters, let us get to work. For we have been given the Spirit of God. And with the Spirit of God, power. And with the Spirit of God, love. And with the Spirit of God, wisdom. So let us use all of it as we see the mission that He has given us. Brothers and sisters, Christmas is about the Lord who is God. And we have been brought to His family by adoption. We are His. And so let us get to work. Let's pray. Lord, thank You for this word today. This conversation, Lord, I oftentimes try to put myself in the conversation that they're having. And so, Lord, we have both this amazing truth of who Your Son is. We also have this charge
to proclaim the truth, to live out who we are. And Lord, the truth is this word tells us we're not always going to be applauded because of it. And so, Lord, I pray that we would be faithful, that this Christmas that we would remember not just a baby in a manger, but God with us, the hope of glory. And so now, Lord, we have come to our time of response. And so we do as we want to do every week, most significant. Lord, today, this week before Christmas, we want to come to the tables. And by that, we are remembering that it is in Christ's life that his body was broken. It was in his life that his blood was shed to redeem us from our sins and to bring us into a family where we are eternally safe. Free, Lord, to live for you. Free, Lord, to take risks for the sake of obedience. Free to carry out the work that you've given us to do. And so, Lord, allow us to worship you. Receive our worship through our giving, through coming to the table, through our singing, and through our going. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together.